0: Thank you, Marnie, and for those who don't know Marnie, she is the Associate uh, Professor of Criminal Justice and Human Rights at Georgian Court uh, University in New Jersey, and I I don't think she uh, goes out of her way to uh, have me say this, but I first met her uh, in 2002 when she was a law student, and she was working with me and others from the Bar Association on a mission to Northern Ireland Ireland, to look at the uh, what was happening to the rights of criminal defendants and in fact uh, has worked with me on uh, at least one more subsequent report, I think maybe more than one so she's had long-standing involvement with the rights of criminal defendants actually not only in Ireland but around the world. Thank you for having me. Um, something is happening in the world And we're gonna be talking about that tonight and try to figure out exactly what's happening in the world. You can pick up any paper. Uh, In fact, I've been astonished because I've been looking for these things, particularly in the last week or so. But every day's paper has something in it about one of any number of, or actually more than one of any number of countries in which there has been a crackdown or a regression or a tightening or a reversion of civil rights and uh, and, and civil society actually uh, to take just a few examples I was in Hungary working with Hungarian judges in December and as I was driving as I was coming into the city there were large billboards of George Soros and they were not the kind of billboards for political ads when it's your candidate in other words he wasn't smiling and it wasn't in color it was black and white and it was a rather severe picture of him and there were a number of these I couldn't quite figure out what was happening but I asked around I asked the judges and apparently he's he's the bête noir of, of the urban government and and I can say that people I was talking with him it's by no means a random selection of individuals But they seem to be uh, relatively concerned about the growth of one party rule because it looks like the Fidesz party is really now basically in control of things. That's just Hungary. Uh, uh, Poland, I'm sure you're all aware of what's happening there in terms of the recent legislation uh, involving what you can or rather what you can't say about the death camps on Polish territory. Melissa will be talking about Hungary and Poland and and Russia. Russia, of course, uh, there's an election and uh, uh, Mr. Putin has disqualified, or rather the main candidate, Navalny, has been disqualified. Um, Civil society groups from the United States have been squeezed, effectively squeezed out of Russia. I know there were consistent exchanges between U.S. federal judges through ABA Roley and the uh, International Judicial Relations Committee of the Judicial Conference of the United States. Those essentially have stopped. I'm not aware of anything ongoing now in terms of judicial interchanges. Melissa can fill us in on that. In China, uh, you all know that President Xi is going to put forth in the National People's Congress that's currently going on, the fact that he could uh, essentially be president for life. Uh, Interestingly, Farid Zakaria wrote a column last week that the major article of world news, the major issue in world news last week was not what was happening in the United States with the ongoing investigations, but rather that Mr. Xi was about to be made president for life or rather they would take out of the... National People's Congress would take out of the Constitution the fact that there were two terms limited. Mr. Xi uh, in the past has uh, spearheaded a very worthwhile uh, um, crackdown on corruption, very badly needed, but of course it turns out that many of those who were found to be corrupt and imprisoned uh, were his uh, rivals for power. I was also told last week that along with the story of Xi being president for life there was a a proposed change to the Constitution which will be voted on this week to uh, give the party more power over the government, which really is hard to do because they're very much intertwined, but nonetheless it would do that. And I was also told there was an administrative regulation passed that there would be no public discussion of this until after the uh, uh, National Party Congress uh, dissolved sometime this week. Um, In terms of uh, judges, um, the uh, party is also going to be voting on what's called the National Supervision Commission to deal with corruption. It's very unclear but these may be party run commissions which take over from the courts So from my particular standpoint of effective administration of justice through a judicial officers, it looks like that may be trouble. Let's go back to Europe. Italy, the rise of the far right. Egypt, uh, um, uh, Mr. Morsi was a popularly elected president. Now Mr. Al-Sisi is clearly clamping down on dissent. Uh, Turkey, uh, Erdogan has been arresting judges also, there was very active interchange between uh, United States federal judges and uh, Turkish judges. There are none going on now. They, uh, they simply do not participate in that program. Uh, the judges seem to be either not allowed to participate or concerned about participating. You can see my focus is on judges, but we'll hear more about how wide-ranging this crackdown is. We're going to hear from three experts uh, on particular countries, Russia, Eastern Europe, um, uh, certainly the United States, and India. Uh, I'm interested in three things that speakers can talk about what they'd like to. But I want to learn what's happening in those countries. I want to learn about how we can respond to what's happening in those countries. And I'd like to see if there's an explanation for why this is happening around the world. It's not isolated to a particular country. And last, and there's no answer to this question, there's probably no answer to the second question. Um, There are a lot of articles, well, the question is, is this retraction of civil liberties in many countries around the world simply part of the ebb and flow of freedom Uh, over the years, or is it as a few articles I've read in the past month um, resulting, uh, to to borrow Reverend King's words, in the moral arc of the universe no longer bending toward justice. So those are the big questions. Why don't we start with Sukti Dital on my left. She's the deputy director of the Robert Bernstein Institute for Human Rights at NYU School of Law. You all know Robert Bernstein and how important he was beginning with uh, uh, Argentina. Um, She's a a human rights lawyer with extensive experience, and she was the executive director and co-founder of NASDIC, uh, which worked in India and was also the Director of the Reproductive Rights Unit of the Human Rights Law Network in India. Ma'am, your floor.
1: Okay. (coughs) Can
2: everyone hear me okay? (coughs) Hi, good evening. Thank you, Judge. Oh, should we wait? Okay, Bahera doesn't need to hear this, I'm sure. so, good evening, everyone. Thank you, Judge Stein, for the introduction and to the International Human Rights Committee, particularly Neil and Marnie, for putting together what is um, an incredibly timely and important conversation. I think that Judge Stein has already kind of set the stage for why this is such an urgent conversation. Um, it feels probably a bit like Groundhog Day. We could have had it last year, we could have had it two years ago. But it's, it feels increasingly more urgent. Um, so, as Judge Stein mentioned, I'm at the Bernstein Institute for Human Rights at NYU School of Law. And we are a center that's committed to cutting edge research, education, and advocacy on two focus areas. And one of them, excuse <clears> me, <throat> is specifically in the area of the defense of dissent and the rule of law which is quite big, Um, but it really honors the legacy of Robert Bernstein who is the namesake of the institute and as Judge Stein mentioned, has really dedicated his life in many ways to the protection of fundamental freedoms beginning with the former Soviet Union and kind of building from there in the eventual founding of Human Rights Watch. Um, Last year, we had the honor to host two of the panelists that you'll be hearing today. Specifically on a symposium that we brought together called "Defending Dissent," and I have the website up there just to give you a sense of if there, if you are interested in learning more, uh, particularly from the panelists who who were part of a two-day gathering. There were seven sessions, um, and we had panelists coming from many of the countries that Judge Stein just mentioned: from from China, from India, from Turkey, from Egypt, from. I already said India, Um, from South Africa, from Turkey, and also from the United States. And the the focus of the symposium was really to better understand this global assault against dissent, um, to understand what are the measures and tools that governments are using to silence dissent, and importantly, what are the responses? What are the creative strategies that human rights activists and scholars and lawyers are using as a mechanism to if not expand their space to even just exist within their countries or to be able to be defenders in exile and still still continue to try to hold their original countries of of residents accountable so um, I'm happy to share this link just because I think you'll really find a lot of rich conversation there and um, and so uh, we also have a couple um, I brought a few Uh, digests. Basically, we took summaries of what was discussed, the strategies and tactics, and we've put it together in like an eight or nine page booklet. If you're interested, please do see me after the talk. Um, So I think Judge Stein has done a great job of of kind of hoping to do what I was hoping to do in the beginning is to really provide a little bit of a global context about the crisis and then take a deep dive into India. and I, as Judge Sine mentioned, I spent nearly a decade in India um, as a human rights lawyer and personally experienced some of the repression, um, but also many, many of my colleagues and, and other you know, collective human rights defenders and the increase of crackdown in India over the last probably five years. And I'll be talking a bit about that um, once I kind of set the stage a little bit. And so just a few, I think, facts and quotes that I hope will contextualize today's discussion. Maina Kia, who was the former UN Special Rapporteur on the rights to freedom of assembly and association, um, he was incredibly active during his tenure. And he observed that um, the world is experiencing, quote, um, a democratic recession. Freedom House, which is an independent watchdog organization. in two, in, for its monitoring of 2017 recognize that this is the 12th consecutive year um, of, of decline in what they call global freedom. Um, they, they contend that democracy is facing its most serious crisis in decades um, with the basic tenets and kind of the bulwark of the rule of law really under contestation and that's things such as free and fair elections, the independence of the judiciary, the rights of minorities, and the freedom of press. Civicus, which is a global alliance of civil society organizations just today, hot off the press, released its 2017, I shouldn't be smiling because a lot of the information in there is quite depressing, but its 2017 monitoring report came out today. And What that does is it kind of captures major trends based on a lot of dialogue that they have with their local civil society partners across the world and they have found that um, 109 countries, they are, quote, closed, repressed, or obstructed as it relates to civic space. What that translates to is that only 4% of people in the world are living in countries with truly, quote, open space. 4%. The United States has been marked as a narrowed country for its recent um, Attacks on civil society that we've seen, particularly in the last year and a half. So, how is this happening? How are governments able to do this? <laughs> oh,
0: just ignore. Oh, it's fine.
2: Technology it keeps it informal. It's great. Um, so, how is this happening? Um, and and I think you'll see from Melissa's talk for sure the coordinated nature of this type of. Uh, what we call crackdown, sometimes done in isolation, oftentimes done with a lot of conversation and sharing of tactics and strategies <coughs> across borders, um, but one thing is clear that there is a targeting of human rights defenders, of, of political dissidents and journalists um, among everyday citizens that are just trying to live their, their lives. And they're doing it through a few different ways, and I mean the universe of this is much larger than what I'm going to highlight, but just to give you kind of from a bird's eye view. One is gov- passing laws that are restricting the ability for NGOs or civil society organizations to operate. Um, another way is p- passing laws that are policing freedom of assembly and association. Another way is passing, quote, cybercrime laws. And those then result in restriction of content of which, what an individual can then publish online. Um, They are targeting, using extra legal forms of harassment and intimidation, um, specifically against um, targets such as defenders and and journalists, and there's an arbitrary application of certain statutes that involve anti-terrorism, anti-money laundering, and sedition. Um, And how are they justifying this? I mean, there's got to be a justification for why states are saying we need these kind of laws in order to get to a, you know, a peaceful or law and order state. And so they justify it on the basis of of countering money laundering, um, what I just mentioned in terms of statutes. They justify it on the basis of combating terrorism. You will see increasingly that human rights defenders um, who may be engaging in somewhat benign activity, um, health advocacy, (laughs) uh, public health advocacy in Mexico, um, a women's collective in Ethiopia, they might find themselves um, charged with an anti-terrorism statute, for example. Um, and that might be just because they've sent a letter saying that they would like the foreign funding law that's in place to be um, revoked, I mean, kind of simple acts of, 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 of dissent. Um, it is a means of, government argues, to eliminate corrupt NGOs. Um, It is a way to protect state sovereignty, Um, there is a real pushback against the notion of Western imperialism and these large foreign foundations coming in and telling us what we should be focused on and so it's kind of a rejection of that kind of imperialism and and neo-colonialism. It is a mechanism to maintain law and order. And this is, I think, one of the most hilarious ones is um, it's a mechanism, they argue, to build the long-term sustainability of local organizations. And so they say if we remove your ability to be reliant on foreign funds, then you will think creatively about how to become a sustainable organization. And I kid about that because in order to build a long-term plan of sustainability, you need time to figure out what those resources could be to fill in the gap. Of, of foreign support, and if that—that's not the way these laws are kind of being implemented, they're done quite rashly. Um, and additionally, if you live in a country where um, your activism or your dissent is seen as something that's antithetical to the nation, then the likelihood of receiving support within the country can be increasingly difficult. So. Um, as been said already a few times tonight, this is not a contagion. I call it a contagion. This is not something that's limited to the traditional states of China and Russia and and now what we're seeing in Ethiopia. This is infecting Kenya. This is infecting India, as I'll talk about a bit more. And this is increasingly affecting us here in the United States. Um, and it is a it is a really sophisticated way in which strategies and laws are being exported. And so. The impact of them is quite significant. Um, There is a crippling of NGO activity in many countries. There is arbitrary arrest, detention, killing of human rights defenders and journalists and judges, and I mean, we could keep going. And there is a serious quieting effect. People are taking softer approaches to their work because they don't want to be under scrutiny of the government. And so this is just a list of some of the impacts. But it's not all so gloom, I think that one of the things we want to talk about tonight is that human rights defenders are standing, they're trying to, they're not standing by idle, and they are being very creative in in ways in which to resist, and um, we'll be looking at some of those strategies, I think, both within all of the three countries, and so um, I apologize for a very depressing beginning to the conversation, but I hope it does provide a little bit of global context and now I'm going to take us on a, on a trip to India. Um, and As I mentioned, I spent nearly a decade there. I moved back to the United States in 2016 and over the course of time that I was there, from 2007, 2008 until 2016-ish, um, I saw increasingly change in, in the environment, um, the sense of fear, and the increase in arrest and detention of human rights defenders. And that is not of coincidence. It connected in part to the election of Narendra Modi, who is the current prime minister of India. Um, So as you probably all know, India is the world's largest democracy. Um, It has been known to have a pretty robust judiciary. It has a progressive constitution, an incredibly active civil society sector. but what you probably don't know, um, it doesn't really catch the media too much here, is that many activists in India are, are viewing what's happening now as a reemergence of the emergency. Um, the emergency period was in the 1970s when Indira Gandhi was Prime Minister and there was in many ways martial law imposed. Um, there was a crackdown on activists and defenders. And so many feel that what is starting to emerge now is really a reemergence of what was there in the 1970s. Um, Human rights defenders say that Prime Minister Modi is on a campaign, quote, to crush dissent. Um, In May 2015, there was a number of civil society organizations, including um, the one that I was affiliated with, which sent an open letter to Prime Minister Modi And they said, it was written to express, quote, deep concern on how civil society organizations and and their donors are being labeled and targeted. Funds are frozen. Intelligence reports are selectively released to paint NGOs in poor light. And their activities are placed on a watch list. NGO projects have been shut down. Donors are unable to support work. And there is an overall atmosphere of state coercion and intimidation in the space of civil society. Today, India ranks 136 out of 180 with respect to its World Press Freedom Index. And this is a country that's known to have a pretty robust media, actually. Um, It doesn't have the same kind of protections that we have here in this country in terms of freedom of press, but it is quite robust. Um, There is an increasing attack on human rights defenders, on organizations, on journalists, traditionally through the mechanisms of sedition claims. Um, defamation claims, both civil and criminal. Um, there's extensive trolling on social media, oftentimes by um, both political propaganda by the ruling party as well as those who are in standing for the BJP. And there's been an increasing number of blockage of internet activity. So when organizations are planning to host some sort of rally or, or an event, there will coincidentally be a block on internet activity within that locality. And None of this is particular to India, as you'll hear from our other panelists, but these are ways in which the Indian government and, and allies are engaging in intimidation tactics. Um, for example, smear campaigns. Um, Soni Sori is a very well-known indigenous human rights activist who has, is from Chhattisgarh, which is um, an area that the Naxalite community is from, which has been a, um, a major place of contestation in India because it's very resource heavy. And Sony Sori has raised issues with respect to treatment of the tribal indigenous communities there, and their fight for communal land ownership. And as a result, she has faced significant violence, arrest, detention. Um, recently, right to right to information activists, um, right to information act is similar to the FOIA here in the United States. It came literally out of a social movement in the late 1990s an organization in Rajasthan is a social collective started pushing for the need for greater transparency in India and this law came out in part because of this really incredible social movement that occurred across the country And that law um, really became a weapon for a lot of defenders to get access to government documents and information from issues of food distribution, I mean, everything, from food to health, education. And recently, we're seeing RTI, right to information activists, actually targeted and in in some instances, killed. Um, Journalists, just recently, Gauri Lankesh, who is a very well-respected journalist in India, has written quite critically, most recently, about the current party. Um, face defamation claims um, and the day before she was murdered and killed she had posted um, something on Facebook that described the BJP party as a quote terrorist organization and the next day she was shot and killed in front of her home. Um, So all of this is happening um, and aside from these kind of intimidation tactics the most signature weapon I would say that the Indian government is using is Um, suspension or revocation of the ability of organizations to operate. And so India has what's called the Foreign Contribution Regulation Act and you need that status in order to be able to receive foreign funds if you're an Indian NGO. Um, Interestingly, its history goes back to India Gandhi again. She passed it in the 1970s as a way to, there was a real fear that foreign governments and foreign companies were going to come in and overthrow the Indian government. And so that was the original um, purpose of the statute. Um, In about 2011, before the BJP, which is the current party, came into office, the Congress party had passed amendments which looked at how do we strengthen accounting and regulatory provisions related to the act. There was some concern that there was these increasing human rights activities happening. But the the amendments really didn't come into force until this new prime minister has come into power. And so, since then, um, very soon after he was elected in 2014, there was an Intelligence Bureau report that was leaked. And um, it accused, quote, foreign funded NGOs of being tools for foreign policy interests of Western governments, end quote. Um, And interestingly, the number of the, the references to the organizations were largely those engaged in environmental advocacy. So those working in defense of coal, in in nuclear energy, so resource extraction heavy, which is a huge um, economic boon for a place like India. And it went so far as to say that NGO activity had impacted India's GDP by 2 to 3 percent. Which is an insane, and any I think I'm not an economist, but I think anyone would say that's insane. And of course, they provided no data or evidence to support that. But that's a very strong claim that a government is making that there's a direct um, impact within the economy of the country. Um, in 2016, two years later, there's been more than 20,000 organizations who have lost their F.C.R.A. Um, there has been specific targeting of, of particular high-profile organizations, and those are seen as Quote engaging not in the national interest, which is a provision um, that allows you to revoke or suspend, uh, in organizations F.C.R.A. Uh, that is organizations like Lawyers Collective, many may know Anand Grover, who was the former special rapporteur on the right to health. His organization, People's Watch, um, which is a his, is is a watchdog organization. Um, foundations such as Ford Foundation were had their F.C.R.A. suspended. Hevos has lost their. Um, FCRA, I could go on and on in terms of the types of organizations that are either facing harassment or have lost their status. Um, so with all of that, what are people doing? And so one of the ways in which human rights activists and defenders and lawyers are responding is through litigation. So. It, Courts have still proven to be an effective recourse, not across the country, but certain courts, we've been able to see some positive judgments. Um, so by example, uh, Priya Palai was an employee of Greenpeace India. And she was planning to go to Britain to talk at a conference um, specifically about the impacts of a, of a mining project in one of the areas that Greenpeace operates. And she was barred from leaving the country and um, they said her name was on a lookout circular. So she immediately challenged the action in Delhi High Court, arguing that it violated her fundamental right to travel, free speech, and expression. The government responded and said that her visit would have negatively impacted India's image abroad. This is actually in the court papers. At a time when India was seeking foreign direct investment. And so that was some of the basis for her denial. Um, the High Court disagreed with the government's position, noting, quote, that a state may not accept the views of civil rights activists, but that itself cannot be good enough reason to do away with dissent. So this is an example of a place where a court has stepped in and recognized that a government has gone too far. We've seen um, a couple other instances where organizations that I've mentioned have lost their FCRA, are currently in pending litigation, and. While they might have their FCRA revoked, their ability to operate domestically has been opened up from the courts. Their bank accounts have been unfrozen. So it's still seen as a place where organizations can go. Um, And and lastly, we've seen organizations turn to the international um, level because some of this is difficult to get covered within national media. So People's Watch, which is this watchdog organization has extensively worked with the UN Special Rapporteur, um, invited him to come into the country. That invitation was denied, but they've met in Sri Lanka or Bangladesh and talked about conditions in India. And um, they had filed papers in the court challenging their revocation. And the Ministry of Home Affairs submitted as a rationale for why they were renewing, not renewing their registration, because um, the Delhi court basically said, you need to tell us why. Why are you not renewing their ju- registration? We need to understand and they said that it was because the executive director of People's Watch had provided information to the UN special rapporteurs and foreign embassies that portrayed India's human rights record in, quote, a negative light. So you're seeing some sort of similarities of, kind of how we're being perceived as a country abroad. Um, that case is still pending, but the advocacy has, has not stopped. Um, and two other ways that, that activists are kind of organizing is building of informal networks and we 'll talk that, that you 'll find a lot in the conference itself, but building alliances both regionally and within the country. They hold people 's tribunals where people come and kind of share what are the civil society violations that they themselves are experiencing and they 're starting to document and monitor that um, and they 're also starting to build narratives to really counter the rationale that governments are giving. so if you say i'm corrupt, I come back and say. I believe in transparency. You can look at my books. I just don't believe in unnecessary regulations. If you think that I am a terrorist, why don't you also think that foreign direct investment multinational corporations who fund numerous countries in India are also not terrorist organizations? The standards that are put towards civil society organizations that receive foreign funding is not equivalent to the standards that are put against Indian businesses that receive foreign direct investment. They're also expanding the definition of what it means to engage in human rights. There's a, there's a particular narrative that they are these treason, sedition, I'm taking down the judiciary and the courts and the government. But human rights means a whole lot of things. It means women's collectives. It means cooperatives. And so they're really kind of expanding the narrative of what we mean when we engage in dissent. So I will stop here. I hope I didn't go way over time. I might have.
0: Perfect. That's perfectly oh. all right.
2: OK, actually I didn't. Hey. Um, I'm happy. I'm
0: not going to say you didn't, but it's perfectly all right. Okay, thank you, Judge.
2: (laughs) I definitely don't want to make Judge upset. So um, I will stop here, and I look forward to conversation.
0: And Melissa is correct. You did not go over. Good. Um, Thank you, Sukti. Let me introduce to you Melissa Hooper, who's sitting on my left. Melissa is currently the director of human rights and civil society at Human Rights First. I think most of you know that. Human Rights First really is very closely connected uh, in its origin story with the Association of the Bar, the City of New York's International Human Rights Committee. Uh, Michael Posner uh, uh, helped found that and uh, was working with Judge Marvin Frankel here on the uh, Bar Association's Committee on International Human Rights. And The Lawyers Committee for International Human Rights then became the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights and it's now human rights first and as I say Melissa is the director of human rights and civil society there. She also, uh, importantly for our purposes tonight, was the head of the Moscow office of the of what's called ABA ROLI, which is the rule of law initiative of the, Associ- of the American Bar Association. Uh, and she was as head of the Moscow office regional director for Russia. And Azerbaijan. So, we're going to hear about Russia and uh, Eastern Europe from Ms. Hooper. Great.
3: Thank you very much. Um, And yes, also thanks very much to all of the committees that helped organize and bring this together, Um, building on the Defending Dissent Conference. um, I'm glad that we get to keep discussing this because uh, it's a moving target. Um, So, there are so many different directions to go in with this. Um, I think Russia is significant when we talk about crackdowns because, um, not because it was first, but because it took has taken a leadership role in demonstrating what can be done, how to bring uh, coordinated strains together and really accomplish routing out your civil society. And um, I, I would like to also talk about Central and Eastern Europe because what we are seeing is not only Russian influence coming in and Russia intentionally in some ways working with um, the Hungarian government or trying to infiltrate um, a very, you know, Russophobic Polish government or Polish society. But you also see just an examination by those governments of what has been done before and then you start to see replication. and I would also argue, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I feel like what we're seeing right now is that Hungary, Poland, and the United States have some real similarities in some of the, the treatment that we're seeing of um, especially certain types of NGOs. And I can go into that. Um, so uh, Russia is important because it developed a model and this model involved uh, a focus on foreign funding, um, a focus on protecting sovereignty, all of the themes that Sukti mentioned, um, trying to rout out corruption, um, you know they wouldn 't say transparency i don 't think, but <laughs> that's just nah but, um, but what 's interesting to me is that now you know that was that kind of put the boat afloat, but I, now what I am seeing in Central and Eastern Europe is um, a taking of that and then piling on populism. And so while there was already concern about foreign funded NGOs, now there's this twisting of it to be about elitist NGOs that are not from our society or not from our community. And they're representing not indigenous values, but the values of a foreign government or a foreign um, you know, way of being. And so there, is, there has, I think, been a little bit of a twist Um, to take these themes and turn them into um, a conversation and a type of messaging um, that works for this moment for these governments to try to maintain power. Um, So some of the specifics that went down in Russia, Um, the foreign agent law, and the foreign agent law, it wasn't the first, you know, Russia wasn't the first to pass a a law that um, Put restrictions on NGOs for accepting foreign funds, but it was really well publicized and it was very stigmatizing. If you're, you know, calling someone a foreign agent in Russia, um, that harkens back to Soviet times when in the Ghent, foreign agent means a spy. You are not. You are definitely a spy. You are working for a foreign government. So there's this real equation in Russia of foreign funding means you. You're evil essentially you know there's no way that you could accept foreign funding and not be problematic Um, interestingly so this law was passed in 2012 Um, it was modified in 2014 to make it easier because ngos were not registering themselves so they just said okay well we're going to register you and we'll tell you when you're a foreign agent interestingly you know russia says this is based on a u.s law the the foreign agents registration act (FARA), and you hear a lot about FARA right now um, I could go into you know how whether and how the, their law is based on the U.S. law. I will just say that, in my opinion, the U.S. law could be more narrowly written. It is an old law and it is a little bit general and a little bit um, imprecise. And so the the differences really between the Russian law and the U.S. law are in the implementation and the fact that the Russian law does target NGOs entirely, It is really focused on just NGOs, although now in response to US action they have expanded it to journalists and so now you see in addition nine media outlets that are on the foreign agent list. Um, in response to the passage of the foreign agent law, um, you also saw um, its implementation in Russia was raids. Raids of all of these NGOs, where you know the tax inspector shows up, the fire inspector shows up, the general prosecutor shows up. Bay is taking a documentary of each office. Um, you saw at least seven thousand NGOs raided over the course of mostly 2013, but into 2014. Um, and so this use of the law to then gather a lot of information, much of which was already maintained, but then to gather very detailed information about different NGOs and then that is of course usable to find a way to shut down an organization. Um, You also had an undesirable organizations uh, law passed in 2015 which targeted those organizations that were trying to fund within Russia. So like the National Endowment for Democracy in the United States or the US-Russia Foundation. Those foreign foundations that were trying to get money in um, they were put on a list so that they could not operate, so that their funding couldn't come in. They're sort of, you know, Russia's trying to patch up any um any way that it sees funding coming in. Um as a result of this, you know, these attacks on NGOs and um and a, a relabeling of them as um as acting against the the, ish, the interests of the state, you see a number of NGOs shutting down. Um you have One third fewer NGOs operating in Russia in 2016 than you did before the law. Um, But even those that are operating, they're just limping along because they can't get funding. You know, Ford pulled out, the Ford Foundation pulled out, Open Society Foundation pulled out. So all of these major funders that had been supporting, you know, anti torture work in Russia um, and, you know, work with immigrants in Russia, like they were gone, people with AIDS in Russia. And then you know there was much discussion of well, who's going to fund this because guess what the Russian government is not um, so and and then you also had self censorship as a result you know there's this great um, environmental organization called Bellona, and Leonardo DiCaprio wanted to give them money and they said no you will you know you're a foreigner you'll be giving us money we'll have to be put on that list, and of course they were anyway, but you saw a lot of you know those that are operating are really having to close their um, close off their activities. They also, um, as a strategy, they broke themselves up into little pieces, so they had a non-governmental organization, a for-profit organization, a foreign foundation um, that could take money and then maybe transfer it to itself, and then a legal bureau, so they were also trying to um, cover themselves in in a structural way. In addition to um, cracking down on NGOs, you also see um, a crackdown in Russia on independent media at right around the same time, which is when Putin came to power, or came back to power, Um, so there were laws regulating foreign ownership of media, specifically, could not be more than 20%, but then you also saw some sinister, I think, dealing with media outlets where. Um, the administrator or the head editor of, of many of the independent media outlets were changed to be cronies or to be more favorable to the government. Um, and then you saw just outright, um, you know, nefarious dealings where one of the the largest um, independent TV station, Dost, that was... Um, televising all of the protests and that was giving a voice to many of the protesters during the 2011-2012 protests Um, all of its contracts with cable providers were cancelled and like on one day gone and so then they had to move into an apartment they had to go to a subscription service they just shrank um, within a short period of time and then of course you also have Russia's distribution of disinformation you know where did that come from that came from Russia that started within Russia. Um, And so that's why you have um, a development of a real distrust in media within Russia because a lot of um, you see stories, stories that are both true and false, and rumor and um, much confusion. Um, In addition, there have been very specific laws outlining, uh, outlawing protests, Um, not completely outlawing protests, but very, I think, intelligently, levying huge fines for those that are protesting. Um, So, you know, equivalent to 9,000 US dollars for someone protesting. So you really have to think twice. I mean, you have free speech, you can go out there, but you just have to pay a lot of money. Um, You know, that's many more times than an annual salary. And then, you know, there were laws that were specifically banning everything but a single person protest. So a single person with the sign could stand there. And there were some clever protests that then a single person would stand here and then like a hundred feet down there'd be another single person (laughs) for like miles. Um, Except then they passed a law that said that if you do that more than once, so if you have more than one single person protest, then you can be arrested. And Ildar Dadin was famously arrested for that and then um, wrote a a letter from prison about his torture that he experienced in prison for again, holding a sign and protesting. Um, And then Russia has, you know, I think, been was an early adopter, I will say, of this use of um, protecting against terrorism um, and threats to the state that come from um, speech and online speech, um, and using that to promote um, harmful legislation, specifically regulating online speech. And that happened a you know, great deal after the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, you saw a real ramp up of use of, you know, extremism, terrorism, incitement of hatred, separatism, um, you know, people expressing their concerns with what happened in Ukraine and then getting arrested for it. And unfortunately, you had the, the main um, online kind of Facebook type uh, community there. They provide a backdoor to the government for information so the government could get information that had been posted online and would use that um, to prosecute people. Um, Let's see, so gosh, there's just so much, Um, and of course, uh, you know, I think that um, some of the most serious violations in Russia are extra legal killings of individuals, you know, you still have journalists being killed in Russia, you have lawyers being killed in Russia, Um, you know, the anniversary of the killing of Nemtsov, who's an anti-corruption campaigner was just uh, a couple of just about a week ago, um, and you have you know his one of his partners in developing many anti-corruption um, reports. Vladimir kara has been poisoned several times, but is still still around. Um, and that's something that trend I think is unfortunately something that we're seeing creeping out out of Russia. Um, I think I'll. There's more that I could say. About Russia, unfortunately. There are so many strategies. But what's interesting to me then is how you see some of those strategies being used um, and, and creeping into Central Europe, especially Hungary and Poland. You know, both of them do have um, foreign agent type laws um, that have been passed more recently. In Hungary, the raids of the NGOs happened in 2014, um, and the real concern. Has that has now shifted, especially in Hungary, to be focused on those that are working with migrants, refugees, immigrants, um, and this concern for you know foreign funding has really focused in on George Soros, especially in Hungary because he's Hungarian. But you also see in Poland the campaigns with the posters of Soros, you know, talking about how he's coming um, to. Uh, you know, basically take over or he's uh, supporting, you know, anti-state activities. You've seen them in both Hungary and Poland. I don't know if you guys know of the national consultations that Hungary does, but it basically every so often sends out um, missives to thousands of people in like citizens in Hungary and it's under the guise of consulting the population but in fact it's just disinformation that they're sending out and so the last national consultation was all about how George Soros is trying to undermine the government by sending (laughs) refugees and migrants to us and so that's how he's trying to overwhelm us and we don't we need to like the question was don't we need to protect ourselves from him and so what kind of question is that? So, in addition to these anti-Semitic billboards, um, you saw in Poland a really direct um, campaign against NGOs that had any Soros connection and the statement that they were all corrupt and were all connected to the prior government. So once Law and Justice came in in 2015, they've targeted all of those NGOs that are not their friends um, by saying they're they're part of the the prior government. Okay, I'll skip that. They, so focusing on independent media, you know, I said that Russia put in cronies in, in charge of a lot of the independent media organization, you know, both Turkey and Hungary have done exactly the same thing. Um, in Hungary, you have now 100% of regional media is not independent, it is owned by someone that is a friend of Orban specifically. Um, in particular, the example of Nep which is the main independent newspaper operating um, in the country, was taken over. By one of Orban's closest cronies, um, but they didn't release any of the, the employees. So, all of these journalists who worked for the main independent news source weren't allowed to work anywhere else, and they weren't earning any money, and they couldn't get to their desks or their computers to get any of their materials. Um, and then, you know, this is something that I didn't get to in Russia, but Russia has passed a number of laws that are trying to redefine history. And, you know, there are prohibitions on rehabilitating Nazism that have led to, you know, someone posting a picture of their yard and what it looked like during World War II, being arrested for that. Um, and so now we have the Poland Holocaust Law, which is, you know, attempting to redefine history. But more than that, I think the more significant provisions of the Holocaust law are that, in addition to the criminal provisions um, that relate to you know, mention of Polish death camps, you have a civil provision that will provide for jail time if you um, defame or tarnish the, the good name of Poland. It's very general. And so the major problem that activists are worried about is that if they want to speak you know, anywhere, come to the US, and speak about what is happening in Poland, then they could be arrested. Um, and the law is now, that part of the law has gone into effect. The, the government said that they will get the criminal provisions reviewed by the Constitutional Tribunal but the civil provi- provisions not. Um, so, let's see. Um, the, I guess I'll, I'll jump to the meat of what my major concerns are in Poland and in Hungary. Um, Number one, you you see this focus on uh, foreign influence and national security threat that is tied to migrants, immigrants, refugees, but also NGOs that represent them. In Poland, they have routed out all of their NGOs that represent those communities or that work on women's issues. They, They, all of those that worked on domestic violence um, and those that represented you know, asylum seekers, they've now received no funding. All of those that do receive funding are um, guided by like s- specific organizations that are headed by those close to the Catholic Church or to the Law and Justice government. So when it comes to immigrants and refugees, that means that the main organization receiving funding in Poland right now helps Christian refugees and it helps those in place which is to say that Poland won't help refugees after they leave their country. They will only help them within their country. Um, In Hungary, this has led to uh, a proposed legislation. This is not passed yet. However, the proposed legislation states that all NGOs that seek to work in any way, quote, in any way, with migrants or refugees must obtain permission from the Ministry of the Interior. Once they obtain permission to work with migrants or refugees, they must obtain a security clearance because to do so is a threat to the state of Hungary. Once they obtain a security clearance to work with migrants or refugees in the state of Hungary, um, then they have to tran- they have to give 25% of any foreign funding that they receive in order to do so to the government because the. Government isn't going to give them any money to do this, so they will of course be receiving foreign funding to do this, so 25 percent has to go to the government to protect the government because it's clearly a security threat what they're doing. Um, and in, in addition to that, then individuals can be designated threats to the security of Hungary, and those individuals will, will be prohibited from going within eight kilometers of the border in order to help migrants or refugees um and that's i think specifically targeting the HCLU the Hungarian Civil Liberties Union and the Hungarian Helsinki Committee that have been challenging all of the other you know foreign agent laws that Hungary's been passing and have been wanting to you know focused on helping re- migrants and refugees the best they can um so this hasn't passed yet but it's slated to pass there's an election going on in Hungary in in April and you know Orban and and his folks are slated to maintain their majority. Um, the other major concern that I have with Poland and Hungary is uh, threats to rule of law, and this is not you know specifically focused on NGOs or on uh, freedom of speech and attacks on journalists, but really on the third independent the third check on government, which is judges. Um, and you saw when um, Orban came to power. Um, In 2010 and then through 2012 and 14, you saw real attacks on the Constitutional Tribunal, on the Constitutional Court in Hungary. Um, And there was a replacement of many of the judges, a forced retirement of many of the judges. And so essentially, the Constitutional Court in Hungary has been cut off at the knees, and it is no longer a check on the government's power. Um, Unfortunately, we recently saw a replication of that in Poland. Um, when Law and Justice came to power in 2015, they had been in power 2005 to 2007, and everything they tried to push through, the Constitutional Tribunal said no. So what did they do? They went after the Constitutional Tribunal right away. Um, in you know, the dead of night, like one o'clock in the morning, they're pushing through new laws to govern the Constitutional Tribunal and how it can hear cases, what cases it can hear, who can be on it. Um, and in addition to that, now there's a transition, you know that has already been done. Um, you have a, a focus now on the ordinary courts or the Supreme Court and the rest of the courts where they're doing things like passing legislation that puts lay judges on the Supreme Court, which are you know people who don't have any legal experience but have only political connections and political experience. Um, and so, you know, my concern is that there is a real focus. On all of those independent checks on the government, you know, on NGOs, on journalists and media, and on the judiciary, and that we see a conversation going on between Hungary and Poland, and even the United States. Um, you know, some of the security provisions that Hungary has cited um, related to its its treatment of um, immigrants and migrants and NGOs that treat those populations you do see happening and starting to bubble up here in the in the US. I'll just reference a few and then I'll check my time and see if I can say anything else. Um, Number one, uh, discussion of Soros. You, you know we've had two members of the House of Representatives write to Secretary Tillerson and express their concern that George Soros is funding liberal NGOs with liberal values and that the US State Department is supporting that and they have told Tillerson you need to be you know on the lookout for this because Soros is a problem um, you also have Um, members of the House of Representatives writing to Tillerson when the Chargé d'Affaires in Hungary spoke out and said the U.S. would like to see more independent media in Hungary because remember 100% regional media in the government's power. So David Kostelanczyk spoke out against you know said we'd like to see more independent media. U.S. members of the House of Representatives wrote to Tillerson and said why is he saying this the U.S. should not be criticizing our ally you know you need to smack down Kostelanczyk. Um, So, when there's this internal, um, I think, fight going on within the U.S., um, I think that causes, that sends a message that perhaps um, governments elsewhere might be able to get away with more than they have in the past without being called out by the U.S., and I think a lack of U.S. leadership really does matter, and that's one of the reasons why you are seeing a deterioration. Treatment of NGOs in the US, you know, there have been instances, and I think that Bihar will probably talk more about this, so I'll just reference, you know, there was a DOJ investigation of an NGO that has been working with immigrants and refugees. Um, And in particular, there was an individual here in New York who was himself undocumented and that has been helping a number of of refugees and he has been arrested. And, you know, a number of people in my organization have uh, have witnessed this personally, and seen their friend be arrested, and likely as a result of his activities helping other refugees. And then in- But there, there's
0: a court case on there, isn't there? In the Southern District of New York, or no? Yeah, yeah there is. Yes, I think so.
2: there is.
3: And then when you, you know, Hungary has this, um, had developed this um, policy of having a safe zone uh, where refugees, if they, entered Hungary, you know, from Serbia, the Serbia was considered a safe third country and the area coming up to Hungary from Serbia was considered a safe zone. So in that zone, if a refugee, if an asylum seeker asks for asylum, Hungary can say, You're not you're not in Hungary yet. You're not, you know, we don't consider you here yet. So it's like, oh, we didn't hear you and they can send people back. Um, but that's similar to what you are seeing the US trying to do with Mexico, where the US is asking Mexico to push people back and to try to prohibit people from coming, from coming in. Um, so I can say you know, more about why, and I also have a list of strategies that have been used in these countries um, to try to respond to all of these things. Um, so I'll get to those during the questions.
0: Let's, uh, that's a nice segue to uh, Bahar Azmi, do we have Bahar on the line? he's on the line. Okay. Uh, Who is going to talk to us about these issues in the United States. Bahar is the legal director of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Uh, That's a civil rights organization uh, based here in New York. They actually have appeared before me in a case against Toto Constant who was Uh, accused of civil rights violations in Haiti a number of years ago. The reason he's not with us now and I hope he can hear us is that he's involved in a four-week trial in the Southern District of Florida uh, which represents a number of plaintiffs in a uh, Torture Victims Prevention Act Protection Act case. Torture Victims Protection Act case. Uh, Bahar can you hear us?
4: Hi, everyone. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a disembodied head, I suspect,
0: but I can hear everyone. Uh, well, that, that gives you more power. It's like big brother. All right. Well, yeah, I'm
4: behind the curtain. Uh, if you
0: would, if I could limit you to 15 minutes, because I'd like to uh, have some time for questions and answers. Sir, sure. talk to us.
4: Okay. Thanks, um, thanks Judge Stein and um, everyone for your interest in the subject, and Um, Yes, the judge mentioned um, uh, today I witnessed something I think fairly remarkable, which was um, indigenous Bolivian uh, citizens in U.S. courts um, testifying against the former Bolivian head of state about the extrajudicial killing of their family members. Um, So at the moment, I'm feeling pretty positive about civil society's base probably more so than when I get back to New York. Um, But so uh, I I want to talk about the the question of civil society. I I think what's embedded in this panel is, you know, what what does Trump mean um, in the United States? Um, And I want to sort of break the question of civil society, a little bit with my area of interest, which is what is, you know, human rights, uh, what human rights norms look like in a Trump era. and, um, and I, I think one maybe assumption that I want to test before we look forward is um, that at least from the perspective of human rights that Trump is a distinct threat over and above threats that um, were developed during, for example, Bush um, the Bush administration, A distinct threat to traditional international human rights norms. Um, and, and one way I thought it would be interesting to test backwards a bit to another era in which the my organization, Center for Constitutional Rights, was particularly engaged, um, which is what I, I would think that I would call the human rights crisis the Bush administra- that caused by the Bush administration's actions following 9-11, um, which I think challenged a number of baseline <clears> assumptions <throat> about the US compliance with law, an international law. Um, so I wanna I wanna look Our new eleven nine 9 moment. Um, so i have been thinking back around the, the Bush administration and the civil society response. I think there were pretty serious external facing and internal facing threats and I'll just sort of tick through
1: some of them. Some of the external uh, threats to s- civil society and predominantly
4: human rights norms were um, clearly first Guantanamo. Uh, an island prison created for purposes of evading the jurisdiction of US courts and denying those Muslim detainees held there any protection of law, the abandonment of Geneva Conventions as quaint, uh, in the face of new forms of conflict, the creation of new legal spaces like Guantanamo and enemy combatants in defiance of international law, Uh, ad hoc creation of military tribunals that didn't comply with international law, expansion of traditional notions of the battlefield to maximize the authorization of legal force by drones and other forms of conflict. Secret CIA sites um torture norms by the highest levels of governments. Um, and there were internal threats as well. Um, I think U.S. actors felt compelled to undertake strong domestic response to root out the threat. Um, and uh, I think transmogrify the Muslim-directed violence internationally to forms of ex- exclusion and, and repression domestically. Um, I, there, there, there are a lot of features of, the, of this as well, but I'll, I'll hit some of the highlights. Um, you know, first, as a result of the PENT bomb pending on post-911 investigation, there were massive sweeps of Muslim immigrants on the thinnest of evidence, um, harsh treatment, confinement, um, even for routine civil, biases, civil immigration violations um, that make some of the sort of ICE actions now look um, comparatively timid. The NSEERS program, the National Security Entry Exit Registration Program, was a special registration program created for um, 80,000 Muslims um, that were based on um, that required uh, non-citizens with certain um, uh, immigration status to register with federal authorities um, if they were citizens of 23 out of what 24 Muslim majority countries. Um, so that even sort of higher proportion of Muslim-directed government conduct, although that NSEERS program, like the current iteration of the Muslim ban, includes North Korea. Uh, Thirteen thousand individuals were deported. Zero charged with a crime. Uh, an Esconder initiative in January two thousand two that uh, prioritized deportation of Muslims without sending deportation order that led to the deportation of twelve hundred people um, and and you know a number of uh, other things. You recall um, John Ashcroft's vague uh, threat about uh, protests of government policy evoking fake phantoms of freedom, really sort of turbocharged and muscular response, um, and and a a kind of rallying of the the public to go to a war. Um, That um, seems in retrospect a big big failure. Um, But but in response to that, um, those sets of threats, I think um, there were some successes. Particularly on the sort of the, the, the some of the external facing threats, maybe less some of the, the internal ones, um, but and, and there the, the may be some lessons learned um, from for civil society from those successes. Um, I think there's a way in which human rights activism was quite successful inside the courts and outside of the courts. Um, there was a strategic human rights mobilization that brought enormous pressure to bear. Um, on the Bush administration helping develop a sort of narr- pretty strong narrative that the Bush administration was violating basic principles of the rule of law um, by amassing, you know, mass executive authority and ignoring human rights mechanisms like the Geneva Convention, the Convention Against Torture, um, a narrative that um, this administration caused America to lose its way Um and uh, so, just you know, take one I- I- example: With Guantanamo. There was this really strong mobilization of domestic and international civil society to point out how abnormal it was to create an island prison that would hold people in incommunicado detention. Um, a mobilization of international human rights and and humanitarian law scholars, POWs, diplomats, uh, foreign governments, especially the. Uh, United Kingdom. Um, There was a kind of resurgence and a remembrance of the kind of I think was was important, um, and, 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 and um, through the sort of change of culture and, and norms and narratives and through the, the, the use of the courts, but in a, another way that uh, is, is relevant to the current conversation, um, I think the civil society and the human rights sort of mobilization impacted not just the courts, it impacted actors within the administration. Um, the, Bush administration had a state department that certainly was purported to care about international engagement and the reputation of the United States, um, and, you know, and, and even for the cynics of, you know, among us as they're mobilizing for a possible war um, they could not completely disregard international consensus. Um, so, I you know, I think there's some real, um, arguably modest, uh, uh, frames of reference that help us understand um, how civil society and human rights um, mobilization responded to a prior, uh, I think, human rights emergency. Um, But you know, how that was our response to the 9-11 moment, what what does that mean for um, how we deal with this um, 11-9 moment? Um, And particularly in the context of a discourse around international human rights Um, it's obviously it's different in a a number of ways and and more threatening in a number of ways I I think most obviously unlike the Bush administration, certainly the Obama administration, the Trump administration has almost no regard for international law or norms Um, you know the sort of reactionary America first agenda, not rejects you know conventional international human rights engagement um, and human rights instruments but even you know consensus security agreements like NATO or economic agreements like NAFTA um, so it does not seem likely that any international mobilization from abroad or from within would affect someone who refuses even to shake down Willow Merkel's hand um, there's not even an audience in the decimated State Department this is the foreign government concern. So that's obviously a concern. Um, Another concern is the Different kind of cast. Um, the, you know, the the, the Bush administration.
0: If I can, if I can, if I may interrupt, I do want you to finish up, but I also want to save some time for questioning. So go ahead. Yes.
4: Yes. Okay. Let me just take two, two, two more minutes. Um, the um, so I mentioned uh, the NSEERS, the special registration program, the Muslim registries program. When that was rolled out in two thousand and two, there was practically no civil society pushback in response. Safe work immigration lawyers uh, filing objections in the immigration court. But when, after Trump was elected, there was a mass mobilization of dozens of Masa, Muslim Arab, South Asian, civil society groups that had not existed 15 years ago, that lobbying the Obama administration completely dismantled the NCR's system that hadn't existed before. Think about the immigration space, there were conversations about um, and, and in fact, lots of immigration removals in the early Trump administration, and there weren't that many civil society organizations doing much about it. Now there are dozens and dozens of strengthened grassroots groups ready to respond. Think about the narrative, that, the successful narrative that the dreamers have had. Uh, same in the national security space and the policing space. Um, and I think there's, there's support for, and, and think about the Women's March, Um, I think that this moment has provided clarity to um, civil society that I I think has mobilized and hopefully in a way that's um, durable. So thank you, Judge. I'll I'll stop
0: there. All right, thank you. Um, uh, I think we still have a ways to go in terms of understanding why indeed this is happening around the world. Um, And I think, uh, Bahar, you started to say that uh, you think one of the ways of counteracting what everyone is seeing is a crackdown on civil society really is civil mobilization. That's how I take your last remarks. But let's uh, open it up to questioning because there's so many questions left on the floor and I do want to have some time. Mark Mark Schulman. Thank you. Uh, Judge Stein has tried to push
5: us to understand why and a lot of the wonderful conversation has been about how. how? So, one of the why factors that I was surprised hasn't co- come up by name is ethno nationalism. And I'm wondering if you think that's relevant or pinned with too much, or if it's just being cynically applied by uh, fearful leaders of auto- increasingly autocratic states.
0: Are you talking about the theme of us versus them, which Bahar was talking about?
5: Well, no, I think of ethno-nationalism as uh, as as a specialized form of that, where there is a an ethnic group that identifies itself as cohesive and attached to the land, and um, in some sort of peril about holding on to their ties to the land and the integrity of their bloodlines, and. I, I wonder what our speakers think.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah and as, as the rest of the panelists were speaking, I realized the one, many things that I didn't get a chance to discuss, but the notion of um, with the current administration that's in power in India, there's been this real rise again of Hindu, the Hindu state being that which is India. India is equated to Hinduism. And so with that means, um, in practical effects, towns being renamed going back to traditional Sanskrit names and renaming them. That means schools being um, their textbooks that are provided to children, rewriting history um, with respect to kind of the notion of Hinduism being really the underpinning of the founding of India even before independence. Um, That has been extensive um, attacks against Muslim communities. And so there were reports of uh, Muslim members who were um, selling cow meat and they were being, they were seen as slaughters and they were killed. They were, so there's a real vilification against anyone that's seen as other than Hindu. And so I think that has been a really powerful tool for the BJP. Um, and they have used that as a mechanism to really equate who can be staying in and who cannot. So you also see issues of migrant migration and refugees with respect to Bangladesh Um, in the Assam border. I spent a lot of time working in Assam, which is in the northeastern part of the country, and there's a huge amount of Bangladeshis that come in, many of whom come for the same reasons that we see around the world. And there has been an extermination of Bangladeshis because they are not seen as indigenous to India. And so that has kind of rallied up. And I think one thing that Modi in particular is very adept at, and I think probably more so than what we're seeing here in this country, is he's an administrator He's been doing this for 25 years. He understands the inner dynamics of government and he also knows with a country that has over a billion people, you can really stoke something and you can create havoc by using religion as a divisive mechanism to cause controversy and when that happens it's like disaster capitalism that we've seen where kind of in that moment laws get passed under the guise of of controversy in many ways caused by some of the political members. And so There has been, I would say, between nationalism and actually connecting to what Baher said, the rise of corporate power. Um, Modi is is an official who really came in with very strong alliances with corporations, both in Gujarat and now um, in India as as the PM, and he has set up very strong alliances with corporations around the world. And he really sees, he and his party see this as a mechanism for, building India up, but building India up for a very select group of people who are deserving to be there. And I think that that's a way to kind of contain um, power and stay kind of a one-man show.
0: Melissa? Um,
3: Yes, of course. both Poland and Hungary, you see um, ethno-nationalism used, you know, specifically targeting – Refugees, the refugees are you know, brown-skinned people. Um, in Poland, you specifically have a policy of repolonization of the media. That's the word they're using. We want to make it more Polish. Um, so we want to prohibit foreign influences in the media. And you also have an educational system that says it wants to create real Poles. So the educational system has been reworked to emphasize the Catholic Church, to de-emphasize science and to again create a Polish identity. In Hungary, you had something called border hunters, which was an advertisement for people to come along and come down to the border and help us police our border. Um, And so encouraging people to kind of take matters into their own hands. And so you do have situations, I mean, both Poland and Hungary, as a result of these messages where individuals are acting out against brown-skinned people who might be, in some cases, were Italian, but they were perceived as not Polish or not Hungarian, and so they've been attacked. Um, and then in terms of a why, I just wanted to reference, you know, there have, has there's a great researcher at NED, National Endowment of Democracy right now, who's been specifically looking at Central Europe, and um, his research is focused mostly on um, a result, uh, on, you know, this is a result largely in the situation of inequality and not just like straight-up inequality um, you know, between like great inequality in Poland and Hungary, but a perceived inequality that there are groups that see other uh, Poles and other Hungarians who have, you know, since the transition to democracy done very well, and they're saying, why can't I do that well? I um, mean, it seems like those messages are driving a lot of the... Um, polarization in Hungary and Poland.
0: So that point is it's not only uh, ethno-nationalism as uh, Mark Schulman described it, but it's internal to one ethnic group. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else? Any other questions? Yes, Mr. Page.
5: Thank you. Uh, very enlightening panel. A lot of the things you're talking about were uh, very reminiscent, and actually Sukti specifically said, uh, about a year and a half ago, things were happening. You know, things changed that um, was provided some impetus for this. And, you know, I, I think you saw a significant amount of that in the U.S. in terms of all, all the topics you talked about. You know, political propaganda by a ruling party, um, smear campaigns you know police state style use of intelligence community and fbi etc so i'm curious actually the, the the building that judge stein sits in was uh... is named after daniel patrick moynihan and i'm curious to hear your thoughts on two specific ideas he had uh, back when he was in office in the senate number one was the nineteen ninety one uh, end of cold war act where let's essentially you know downsize the intelligence community significantly because they completely failed in the uh, their analysis of intentions of Moscow. And number two is he led the Moynihan Commission on Transparency, which is, you know, having much more openness in government. And I think we've seen you know, you, you talked about the FOIA um, anal- analogies, et cetera, I'm wondering um, whether those two uh, ideas that Senator Moynihan once talked about might be a way of addressing some of these broader issues and given the overlap that we've been discussing. Thank you. Any,
0: anyone? I don't
1: know Bahar,
0: is that, uh, is that for you? If not all taken. The, 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 if I can uh, restate it if you didn't hear it, it's our two of Senator Moynihan's ideas worth thinking about now one increased transparency through such items as a FOIA and their its equivalent and also a reducing of the intelligence apparatus of the United States is that essentially what you're saying that's it that's the question does it make sense to look at those two items now and the characterization was that uh, pa- uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was advocating those
4: Yeah. Light on U.S. national security policies There's sort of an infinite number of ways that it's been harder to deploy, um, and um, and but but query if this isn't um, like a post Nixon moment um, th- that if if, if Congress uh, won't recognize that um, this aggregation of power in the executive branch that's been happening s- systemically. Since the Reagan administration tried to build it, Um, and with various winks and nods and assurances, you know. So, like, take take for example, the aggregation of power in the Bush administration was accepted because, um, well, this was a a national emergency, so we're going to sort of uh, tolerate uh, those kinds of accommodations. And then (laughs) during the Obama administration, was uh, I, you know, and this is a this is broad over generalization, but say from the center, center, or left, um, it's okay for him to have these sort of ground national security powers because he's a really smart and conscientious person, and so I can sleep all well night with him having them. Um, so now what happens um, when you have um, a, a, a madman in the driver's seat? Um, so, uh, you know, assuming the sort of popular movements continue, um, I think mean, it would be critical to uh, have sort of legislative opportunities to increase transparency uh, and diminish the sort of vast reliance on the intelligence community. Um, and uh, you know, from my perspective, uh, militarism abroad more, more broadly. All
0: right, well thank you. We, I think we have time for one more. Yes, sir.
1: Thank you, Judge Stein.
0: Um, I think this question is primarily for Melissa, and it stems from the committee of this association which I chair, the European Affairs, and we are a co-sponsor of this this evening, in fact. Um, We are all aware that within the European Union, based on the treaties and the extensive legislation, there are extensive constraints on the freedom of action within the member states. And as you speak of Hungary and Poland, in particular the Polish, um, the Holocaust law, are, or do you envision that there will be constraints through European institutions, through the courts, that will put limitations on the steps that you were describing within Hungary and Poland?
3: So there is the Article 7 procedure, the rule of law procedure that's been initiated um, already where the EU is essentially saying that Poland is not acting in accordance with the values of the EU under article 2 and the you know the question is whether that will be like that's proceeding one the question is whether that will be effective Hungary can veto ultimately so i think the problem there is that um, that Hungary, you know, that Kaczynski and Orban are sticking together. So I think that strategically in the foreign policy world what needs to happen is there needs to be a focus on trying to break them up in some way. Maybe focusing on the corruption happening in Hungary and Orban's connection to Putin because of course Kaczynski really does not like Putin or Russia. So if you can somehow disrupt that alliance then maybe you can get Hungary to not veto and you could impose sanctions on Poland. That's number one. You have infringement proceedings in the court of the European Union. Those are related to very specific policies, so for example, policies of not accepting immigrants or migrants. Um, And you'll see eventually um, a ruling in those, you know, in each of those proceedings Um, and then. The you know, Hungary and Poland will have to decide whether they're going to abide by those rulings, but they will have to make some policy changes. And then you know, I think that you um, could also see uh, recent discussion has been around whether the EU might condition funding on rule of law, you know, meeting certain rule of law requirements. I like that idea a lot, a lot of other people do, and it's a matter of whether and how they can pull that together, but I think that that's gaining momentum.
0: Let me take the moderator's privilege because it was one more hand all the way in the back, ma'am, and this will be the last one. I didn't mean to ignore you.
6: Um, So I I just wanted to ask Melissa more about this uh, strategy. So I worked for 10 years um, in the former Soviet Union, and I was born there. Uh, in a human rights organization called Daroga, which means the road, and basically we um, we outsourced funding from every single possible entity we could to help us stay afloat, and we also were shut down um, consecutively all the time, and we moved around to different cities, uh, camouflaged, uh, and uh, we were we were basically hounded. No matter which name we kind of we were clever. And so I was just wondering, in terms of strategy, is there a way, is there something that you can suggest? I'm not planning to go back because I'm a US citizen, but uh, just wondering, what, what can an NGO do when they're on the up and up and they're striving to actually, we were fighting for the rights of, uh, of ethnic minorities. I was one of them. So just wondering if you have a.
3: It's tough. Piece. And especially in Russia it's been really tough you know there are a number of organizations that are functioning now but they are they're doing these kinds of things they're moving around or they're you know developing different kinds of entities so that they can function in different ways Um, and in you know often they're working very informally so they're not registering which is really kind of risky but it enables them to do their activities the other thing that Russian NGOs are trying to do is they're trying to you know, change the conversation about NGOs, which Sukti mentioned earlier, change the messaging around NGOs. So it's not that we are a national security threat. It's that we are serving populations that the government is not serving. Um, So we're trying to help the community. And so then trying to crowdsource and, you know, get more funding. And that's growing in Russia, slowly, but very slowly. But yeah, I know it's, it's just tough. Um, So we admire your work.
0: Well, we're over time. I apologize for going over time. I want to thank the panelists, Sukti, Melissa, Bahar, and and the sponsoring organizations. I have a feeling that any one of the topics we've been dealing with uh, would be at least a semester's course. Uh, So I apologize for uh, the shortness of this program, but I hope we're leaving with food for thought. Thank you for coming.
2: I was wondering about the funding yeah. piece and I didn't realize they have, I didn't realize it has to actually be passed in order little- to